Just a content warning before we get started, we will be talking about sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and suicidal ideation. Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. So you've no doubt heard of the Fountain of Youth, and while that sadly does not exist, some people still manage to postpone aging for a good long while. Today, we look at a case of a girl, well, a woman, who pretended to be 16 years old until she was 32, including attending high school, going to prom, and landing an innocent man in jail. You know, just typical teenhood. Treva Joyce Throneberry was born on May 18, 1969, in Wichita Falls, Texas. She was the youngest of five, with one brother and three sisters. She was quite a bit younger than her siblings, so once they had all left the nest, Treva was given a lot of attention. But not all attention is good. It's not clear exactly what went on in the Throneberry house, but all of Treva's sisters, Carlene, Kim, and Sue, got married as teens to get out of the situation. The family wasn't very well off, with her father Carl dropping out of school in sixth grade and never learning to read. To escape, Treva would often visit the nearby Pentecostal church, where she would tell parishioners that she was scared to go home, and that she snuck out at night to sleep on the church pews. Once, she went to the altar and told Jesus that she didn't deserve to live. As you'll see, it can be pretty hard to tell with Treva what's true and what's not. For instance, one night, she woke up her niece saying that a man with a gun was outside. When they went to check, no one was there. When she was about 15, she told church members that her father had raped her while holding a gun on her. This accusation was taken seriously and landed the whole Throneberry family in court. Treva's sisters each signed affidavits saying their father was not a sexual abuser. While they investigated further, Treva was removed from the home and taken to Electra, Texas, where she lived with a foster family. Unfortunately, while the story about her dad was a lie, Treva had been abused, as had her sisters. It was their uncle, Billy Ray, who had molested them all. And once Treva was the only Throneberry kid left at home, she got all of his attention. He'd stop by with a gift for her, tell her she was his princess, and then abuse her. Many years later, Treva's sisters confirmed that they too had been victims of Billy Ray. While living with her foster family in Electra, Treva attended the local high school. There, she began to tell her classmates about her abduction by Satanists, who performed ritual abuse to get money. Not sure if her fellow students thought she was giving the Satanists money, or her family, or like, spectators, but somehow, according to Treva, the abuse got them money. But the thing was, this wasn't a new school for Treva. Electra is in the same school district as Wichita Falls, so these kids had known Treva her whole life. They knew she hadn't been abducted and tortured by Satanists. So suffice it to say, Treva didn't have a ton of friends in school. She worked part-time as a waitress, and on her breaks, she sat by herself and read her Bible, which she kept in a zippered red case. In May of 1986, at 16, Treva went to see her school guidance counselor, to whom she casually mentioned that she was thinking about jumping off of a bridge. Treva was seen as a perpetually cheerful girl by those in town, but they had no idea what was going on in her head, and the police were called. 
Trifa was sent to Wichita Falls State Hospital for five months, where she was diagnosed with a personality disorder, which back then was called a characterological disorder. She was given medication for depression, anxiety, and schizophrenia. While the medication seems to have helped her at the time, because of how she would live her life, she wouldn't be able to get a steady prescription, and so was only taking them periodically at best, which is not how that stuff works. At the hospital, Treva rarely ate, cried a lot, and spent long hours staring out the windows of the adolescent ward. When her family visited her there, she refused to talk to them. So when Treva was discharged in October of 1986, her parents didn't want her in their home. Instead, Treva was sent to Fort Worth, where she attended the Lena Pope Home for Troubled Girls. I always wonder if people put stuff like that on their job application. The staff's goals for Treva while at Lena Pope were for her to develop and maintain interpersonal relationships. Treva would not master that skill. Nevertheless, she graduated from Arlington Heights High School in 1987. She told her teachers that she wanted to go to a Bible college that didn't require SATs. Now that she was 18 and had her diploma, Treva wasn't obligated to stay near her parents or even in Texas. Had she seen this opportunity to turn her life around, things could have been very different for Treva. But she didn't. She never applied to the Bible college. Or any college. After graduation, she returned to Electra for just one day, where she avoided her parents but met up with her sisters. They begged her to take back the rape allegations that were still dogging their father, but Treva refused. She left town and went back to Arlington, where she got a job as a hotel maid and allegedly lived with an unofficial foster family. Her foster mother, Sharon Gentry, would become extremely worried about Treva. The teen would leave notes on Sharon's ironing board that said things like, Sometimes I wish I were dead. Sometimes I don't. Life seems impossible and death seems eternal. I will have no life after death. Which, in addition to being alarming, is also a very strange thing for a devout Christian to say. Treva also told Sharon that she'd had a dream that she shot herself. It seems Treva was becoming more and more unable to keep up her cheerful facade. After the gentries, Treva stayed at the YWCA for a while, and then she just kind of disappeared for a few years. Despite all of the investigation that eventually went into this case, including a trial, no one knows what Treva was doing from late 1987 to 1993. Many people in the towns she'd grown up in believed she'd been killed. Her parents even got burial insurance. In order to help out, Sharon Gentry sent investigators Treva's dental records. Then, in 1993, Treva showed up, somehow, in Corvallis, Oregon. Except her name wasn't Treva Throneberry, it was Kelly Smith. As would be her pattern, Treva showed up at a local church, clutching a teddy bear and her red Bible, and asked for help. And while I sometimes scoff at the stereotype that being Christian automatically makes you a good person, Treva truly did find some very generous families to scam over the years. She got a job at McDonald's and had her name legally changed to Kelly Smith. This, she told her hosts, was because she had to hide from her dad. He'd already found her once and raped her in his car. She also mentioned that her father had been an Oregon police officer, which was a mistake. The local police wanted to find this girl's abuser, apparently one of their own, and give him due process. So they scoured every police department for Kelly's dad. Finding no one, Kelly was charged with filing a false report. She clearly hadn't learned her lesson, though, because the next summer, she tried the same thing in Portland. Another investigation was done, but before they could get too far, Kelly had disappeared, headed for Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where she stepped off the bus with her hair and pigtails, carrying her bear, her Bible, and a new name, 
Kara Leanna Davis. As Kara, she told the new version of her past. As a child, she had watched her policeman father murder her mother, and then her father, a member of a Satanist cult, had offered her to the group to torture. They abused her, they made her drink blood, blah, blah, blah. But as outlandish as it sounds to us today, keep in mind that America was still in the throes of the Satanic Panic. People accused of ritual abuse were still on trial in 1997, and this is only 1994. Kara never made it to school in Coeur d'Alene, though. Perhaps her allegations were taken seriously again, because she disappeared after two months. Next, Treva was back in the state of her birth, this time in Plano. She was Kara again, but with a K instead of a C, and the new last name was Williams. She was 25 now, but still claimed to be 16. Kara had been born and raised in a satanic cult, of course, and had been taught her destiny was to honor Satan, which doesn't make much sense since she arrived in town with a well-worn Bible, but I guess Satan was one of God's angels or whatever. She said that many of the kids in the cult had been stabbed to death with daggers, and she didn't know how to end her night without offering a prayer to Satan. Oh, and her policeman dad had still murdered her mom. Unfortunately for Treva, because accusations of Satanism were such a big deal in the 90s, for a third time, her story was taken extremely seriously. A female police officer from Plano drove to the Texas suburb where Kara had claimed her dad was a cop and asked the chief of police if he knew of anyone who had worked with that dabbled in Satanism. Meanwhile, in Plano, Kara was getting showered with attention. Volunteers from the social worker's office took her to Six Flags, bought her new clothes at malls, while the social workers themselves worked hard to find a foster home for the girl. She had problems with most of them, but the workers dutifully found her another one, and then another one. And this, I think, is the biggest thing that pissed me off about this case. Because there are so many real foster kids who get the short end of the stick and have a terrible time in the system. Meanwhile, Treva was 25 years old and taking up time and resources given by these clearly dedicated employees. Treva slash Kara made at least one allegation of rape by a foster dad, and I know we need to believe women, I know, but I find Treva's dozens of accusations to be questionable. Again, there are actual rape victims who get written off because of false allegations like Treva's, and she has many more to come. Each new foster home meant a new high school, and I have to wonder if Treva liked the experience of being the new kid. She never seemed to be one to have close friends to leave behind, even in her hometown, and maybe she enjoyed the attention as everyone assessed her in the first few days. The CPS worker on Kara's case, Suzanne Arnold, knowing that Kara liked tennis, bought her a new tennis racket on one of her first days. Suzanne also gave Kara her phone number, which Kara scribbled into the cover of a notebook. When Kara disappeared from Plano shortly after, Suzanne hoped she'd use the number if she needed it. But it wasn't Kara who contacted Suzanne next about the case. It was a fellow social worker in another Texas town. She said she'd met with a girl named Kara who had Suzanne's number written in her notebook. Since Kara had said she had no connections, the social worker was curious who Suzanne Arnold was and called the number. She also told Suzanne that actually, she recognized Kara from a notice the social work office had received. The girl's name wasn't Kara, and she wasn't a girl. She was a 26-year-old woman named Treva. A few days later, Kara was brought into the social worker's office and was shown pictures, documents, and even a writing sample that proved she was actually Treva Throneberry. They threatened to bring her up on charges of fraud and false accusations. Treva threw such a tantrum that they finally said they wouldn't press charges and simply begged her to get some help. The next day, Treva disappeared. 
Treva left Texas for the furthest place a bus would take her, Asheville, North Carolina, where she was Emily Kara Williams. That's Kara, spelled K-H-A-R-R-A. She was getting creative. But North Carolina didn't seem to suit her because two months later, in August of 96, 16-year-old Stephanie Danielle Lewis arrived in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Treva had clearly figured out that actually most 16-year-olds don't carry a teddy bear with them, so she traded it for the tennis racket Suzanne had bought her in Texas. As for Stephanie's backstory, it was the same old, same old. Murdered mom, satanic murderer father, and now she had been sent to Altoona by an underground religious organization who was helping her escape. In an article published in the New York Times, writer Emily White said that Treva continually said she was a minor because she didn't understand how she could exist as a grown-up. And it makes sense. Studies have shown that some people with a history of sexual abuse don't trust their own skills as adults. And while that makes sense, the problem for Treva is that when you're a minor, you can't get a job or rent an apartment or a car or even register at a high school unless you have an adult to vouch for you. She couldn't just show up on someone's doorstep and ask, can I live with you? So each time Treva arrived in a new city, she had to go to either a social work office or a police station. And even if she didn't do that, a girl no one's ever seen before telling tall tales about satanic ritual abuse is going to get noticed and reported to the police. Treva, or Stephanie as she was then, made it an impressive 18 days in Altoona before she was picked up by police. They, too, spotted Suzanne's number in Treva's notebook. Just throw it away, Treva. It's got to be full by now. Suzanne gave them the true story, and Treva was arrested on charges of giving false information and spent nine days in jail. The police called her parents and asked them to talk some sense into their daughter. Carl said, Hi, baby, it's your daddy. To which Treva said, You sound like an awful nice man, and I wish you were my father, but you're not. Her mother Patsy said, Honey, you'll be Treva Throneberry until the day you die. Now stop playing games. As soon as she was released from jail, Treva disappeared. She'd been in Altoona for less than a month. After Pennsylvania, Treva, or whatever her name was at the time, turned up briefly in Louisiana, New Jersey, and Ohio, until in 1997, she seemed to find a place that stuck. Vancouver, Washington. Here, the 17-year-old, now called Brianna Stewart, appeared. Brianna Stewart, for whatever reason, would be Treva's sweet spot. She was Brianna for almost five years. As usual, she found a place to stay, this time with the Gambetta family. They happily gave her their spare room, telling her to decorate it however she wanted, and even giving her a weekly allowance. While registering at Evergreen High, she said, From her first memory, Brianna didn't know what her real name was, but her stepfather, who was Navajo, started calling her Brianna, which means bright eyes in Navajo. It doesn't. Brianna is a Celtic name that means strong. She ran away from home when she was 13, hitchhiking through the U.S. In Vancouver, she'd been walking the streets during the day and spending the night in youth centers. I never had a normal life, she said. That's all I want to be a normal teenager like everyone else. She also told administrators that her goal when she lived in Vancouver was to get a social security number of her own. She'd never had one, she said, because maybe she'd been kidnapped. Treva must have enjoyed being Brianna, because for seemingly the first time, she allowed herself to make friends. Perhaps her classmates found her more approachable since she wasn't telling stories about sacrificing babies and drinking blood. That can be kind of off-putting to 14-year-olds. So as Treva started to settle into her life as Brianna, she started to make friends. People called her Brie and said hi to her in the hallways. The other kids did think she was kind of weird. She wore a t-shirt and overalls almost every day, 
always had her hair in pigtails, and was very physically awkward. She was a terrible actress, the irony, but tried out for all the school plays anyway. She was bad at math, but loved English. She could recite long passages of Shakespeare from memory and wrote stories for extra credit. And for the first time, Treva had a boyfriend. Kenny Dunn was in the same grade as Brianna and was also friends with the kids of Brianna's foster parents. The couple officially started dating in mid-1998. Kenny told his friends that he liked the way Brianna walked and thought her accent was cute. They went on dates to bargain stores, roller rinks, and the mall food court. Kenny went to church with Brianna on Sunday, as well as the Thursday night youth group meetings. At these meetings, she often gave testimony that included scripture she recited from memory. As the couple got to know each other, Brianna started to reveal more of her life to Kenny. She told him she'd been raped at 11 and got pregnant. Her stepfather pushed her down the stairs to cause her to miscarry, and when Brianna told the police, they didn't believe her. Then she told Kenny that a month or two before she'd enrolled at Evergreen, she befriended a security guard downtown, Charles Blankenship. One day, while they were sitting in the guard's car, he raped her. He ended up pleading guilty to sex with a minor and was sentenced to 50 days in jail. Kenny said he couldn't believe what he was hearing. I wanted to help. I wanted to make her happy. I wanted her to know that someone cared for her. And Kenny was a seriously great boyfriend, especially by high school standards. He came to Brianna's tennis practice after school to cheer her on. He ran lines with her for the school play. Brianna asked him to the Sadie Hawkins dance and they wore matching overalls and red t-shirts. As they danced to their song, Shania Twain's Still the One, Kenny told Brianna he loved her. They kissed. Kenny said it was the perfect teenage romance moment. Except, allow me to remind you, that Kenny was 16. His girlfriend was almost 30. In May of 1999, Treva must have been feeling a little too settled in Vancouver, so she had to stir things up a little bit. But while to Treva, accusing yet another man of rape was just another day for her, it was possibly ruining the reputations of these guys. Her latest target was her foster dad, David Gambetta. She called the police and told them that Gambetta had put cameras in the light fixtures of her room so he could watch her undress. The police came by and checked, but found nothing. Obviously, Treva slash Brianna was asked to leave the house for good. For the first time, Kenny was forced to reevaluate his girlfriend. First, he knew David Gambetta well and didn't see him as a predator. And if Brianna was willing to lie about that, what else was she lying about? She'd told him stories of rapes and miscarriages and hitchhiking across the country. They'd seemed crazy at the time, but how could a 16-year-old pretend she'd been raped? The two broke up, though only briefly. By the time the homecoming dance came their senior year, they were two peas in a pod again, and Kenny's mom made Brianna a dress using what she described as the most expensive gold lame fabric I could find at Fabric Depot. For Christmas in 1999, Kenny got Brianna a silver ring inscribed with a quote from Romeo and Juliet. After the Gambettas, Brianna was moved to the home of the Fishers, a family Brianna knew from church. Debbie Fisher was pretty suspicious of Brianna from the moment she moved in. She said Brianna looked older than 17, and Brianna would get upset if Debbie ever brought it up. Perhaps trying to prove she was a teenager, Brianna constantly argued about chores with the people who were letting her live in their home for free. All of a sudden, she started yelling about her past in a satanic cult and how she'd been impregnated by a Midwestern senator while working on his election campaign. What? And Debbie wasn't the only person getting suspicious. When taken to the dentist, it was discovered that not only had Brianna already had her wisdom teeth out, the scars were completely healed. 
Personally, I think this is a pretty dumb marker of age since I'm 31 years old and still have my wisdom teeth, so I guess this dentist would assume I was 14 or something. But word about this reached Kenny, and he started asking questions again. While riding around in Kenny's car, he broached the subject of Brianna's teeth and asked if she might be a little older than she was saying. Maybe she'd been held back a year or two? Maybe she'd been held back a year or two? Brianna started screaming at him. How dare you think I'm not 17? How dare you even ask me that? Don't you love me? She also penned a five-page, single-spaced letter to a social worker who asked about her teeth. Quote, My word means much to me, and when I give my word that I am doing and being as honest and upfront as I can with the information about myself, I mean it. Okay, well, after reading that, she does kind of sound like a 17-year-old. Through all of this, Brianna was trying to track down her past. This seems like a pretty dumb move on Treva's part, allowing people to look into her past, even if it was a made-up one. Treva knew, because of the phone calls to Suzanne Arnold, that social work programs in several states knew about her, including her real age. But as prosecutor Mike Kinney would say about her later, she thrives on attention. She lives on it. It feeds her. But Treva, or Brianna, didn't just hire a Vancouver lawyer to help her petition the government to give Brianna a social security number and ID papers. She also gave interviews to the local papers about her quest. She told reporters that she had no memory of her early life. I may not know who I was before I was three, she said, but I do now. Rather poetically, Brianna wanted to be a children's rights lawyer. She wrote unassigned essays on the topic. Child abuse, adjustive behavior, society's missing youth. Like, come on, does she want to be caught? I think yes, because she let a Portland investigator take her fingerprints. She also let Indian Health Services take her blood to compare to missing persons reports. I can't, you guys. She told the health service people that she believed she may actually be a girl who was kidnapped in 1983 from Salt Lake City. In January of 2000, Brianna took some time off school to travel to Montana to discuss the Salt Lake City case with a sheriff there, and to Daphne, Alabama, where Brianna believed she was from. A detective drove around town for days, hoping to jog her memory. But shocker, her memory was not jogged. Back in Vancouver, Brianna puzzled psychologists. Her stories of rape and abuse seemed to be genuine. One doctor wrote in his notes, There was nothing in her behavior to suggest that she was knowingly misrepresenting the facts. They thought perhaps she didn't remember her past because she was suffering from PTSD and amnesia. In June of 2000, Brianna Stewart graduated from Evergreen High School. Barely. Her GPA was a 2.83. This was the first time one of Treva's aliases had ever made it to graduation. She enrolled at Clark College, to which, to which she'd gotten a tuition waiver, again using up resources someone more deserving could have gotten. While Brianna and Kenny were still together, they spent the summer apart. Kenny was preparing to start working at Disney World, and Brianna spent her summer doing volunteer phone work for Ralph Nader and continuing her own campaign for her ID papers. Working with her two lawyers, a hearing was scheduled for late March of 2001, and Brianna spent the rest of 2000 gathering everything she'd need. But she'd never make it to the hearing, because she was murdered. No, I'm just kidding. As I pointed out earlier, it's incredibly stupid to give the government your fingerprints and blood if you're trying to fly under the radar. On March 22, 2001, Brianna, or rather Treva, was arrested for theft and fraud, which had been discovered using her, what? Fingerprints. Treva claimed that she had no idea who Treva Throneberry was. From jail, Treva gave interviews about how she'd never heard of this Treva person and wrote letters to the judge. 
Her niece wrote her a letter begging her to turn herself in, but even she received a denial. The two lawyers she'd hired to argue for Brianna's ID papers offered to represent her in court, but she fired them when she found out that their argument was that she was Treva Throneberry, but she was innocent because she didn't know that. Instead, she told the judge she wanted to represent herself. Legally, the judge couldn't deny her because she understood the nature of the charges and potential punishment, but he told her he'd have one sit by her during the trial in case Treva needed help. She was offered a plea bargain. Admit that she was Treva and only get two years in prison. She refused. After news about Treva slash Brianna reached Kenny's mother, which didn't take long, his mom immediately called up Kenny at work in Disney World to let him know. Clearly, Kenny had had his doubts before, but upon receiving the news, Kenny exclaimed, Mom, I went to homecoming with a woman who was 12 years older than me. And that's one of the ironic things about this case. Treva was willing to endanger so many lives and reputations by accusing people of rape, but meanwhile, she was poised to become a rapist herself. As it happens, Treva and Kenny never had sex, but even kissing can be considered sexual assault in certain states, and they did lots of that. Treva's trial began in November of 2001. She showed up with a tall stack of law textbooks and pads of paper full of notes. The attorney who was accompanying her told the media that his client, as it were, wasn't guilty, that if she were truly a con artist looking for financial gain, she would have chosen an easier ruse. Senior Deputy Prosecutor Mike Kinney said that he thought Treva could definitely defend herself. As he put it, she's graduated from high school at least twice. But, he added, her ability was what made her dangerous. She knew exactly what she'd been doing all those years. Kinney had quite the procession of witnesses. He brought in a collection of psychologists. Dr. Kenneth Muscatel said, If this is what people think, a woman needing to go back to a certain age and relive it again and again, then it will be one for the books. Kinney brought in a Vancouver store clerk who testified that when her friends wanted to buy cigarettes, Treva had used her ID to buy them. This was countered later by one of Treva's witnesses, a classmate, who said that Treva didn't smoke and that had never happened. Kinney held up DNA tests comparing Treva's blood samples to her parents. Science said that Treva was absolutely their biological child. Treva later said that the Throneberry's blood was altered during chemotherapy. Kinney also flew in Sharon Gentry, the woman who'd found Treva's notes about suicide on her ironing board. Gentry brought pictures, which appeared to make Treva uncomfortable. Treva looked at a picture of herself and Gentry on a beach and asked her former foster mother, the Treva in these pictures, what was she like? Was she smart? Did she work hard? At the end of Gentry's cross-examination, she and Treva were both crying. While Treva argued her case confidently, to the point it annoyed Kinney, the fact was that she just didn't have much evidence. With her hair in pigtails and an ankle-length denim skirt, she certainly looked the part of an innocent youngster, but the proof just wasn't there. She'd brought in a report from a Vancouver psychologist that allegedly proved Brianna was telling the truth, but it was ruled inadmissible. Kinney, in his final statement, said to the jury, If you feel sorry for her, we don't give a damn about your tears. That's not why we're here. He said that Treva just wanted to be a pampered child for as long as possible, and the jury seemed to agree. Treva was quickly found guilty. The judge sentenced her to three years in prison, telling her that he wanted to send her to a psych hospital, but legally he couldn't. And unfortunately, the prison where Treva was going, Washington State, didn't have a great mental health program. As Treva heard her sentence, she looked out the window and said to herself, It's so unfair. 
As she was led out of the courtroom, she yelled, My name is Brianna Stewart and I am 19 years old. I'm not guilty of anything except being a teenager. Treva served a little bit over two years of her three-year sentence, being released in June of 2003. She moved to Seattle, living in a women's prison as a kind of halfway house for a short period. And finally, after all this insanity, she got what she wanted, a Washington state ID card stating that her name was Brianna Rebecca Stewart and she was born on December 22, 1981. In 2004, a reporter who had followed her story saw her on the streets. She said Treva was again back in her overalls and pigtails and was telling anyone who would listen about being an amnesiac and an abductee. And sadly, it doesn't seem like Treva has changed much since then. After flying under the radar for over a decade, Treva reappeared in 2016. She was living under the name Brianna Kenzie and working at a hotel. While there, she, can you guess, accused a local man of sexual assault. Her background was looked into and she was fired. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash hookedthepod, where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.